Matthew 4, 12 through 22. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went up and lived by, in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulon and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulon, in the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in the darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them the light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called to them immediately. Or called to them. Immediately they left their boat and their father and followed them. And this is the word of the Lord from Matthew 4, 12 through 22. All right. I'm going to pray for Kevin and he can get started. Lord, we thank you for this time here this morning. We thank, that we're, thank you that we're able to be here. And we thank you for Kevin's time in preparing to share with us. And we pray that our ears would be open, that our, our hearts would be softened, and that we would be ready to receive whatever you may have for us. And we pray that for Kevin, that every word that comes out of his mouth is not one word more or one word less than what you would have. And that we pray that we would be willing listeners and not just hearers of the word, but doers. And thank you for this time. Amen. Sarah, welcome everyone once again. I said this a few weeks back, but if there's any word that I think describes our world today, um, a biblical metaphor that seems fitting, at least to me, over the last few years, it's the one of darkness. It's at least felt to me that uh, it's as if a cloud has hovered over us, obscuring any glimpse of the sun. It's felt like 2 a.m., so much of the time with few stars in sight. Now when the Bible uses the, the word darkness in this figurative spiritual sense, it's talking about a couple of things. Ignorance, lack of knowledge, first of all, about everything, but especially the things of God. And secondly, evil, rejecting that knowledge. Again, all reality, but mainly knowledge of God, and then living in rebellion toward Him. Ignorance and evil. We've seen that everywhere, right? We've seen so much confusion, so much misinformation, so much wickedness everywhere we turn. You know, we just have to glance at our phone for a few minutes. So little knowledge of God and His works, so much rejection of Him and His ways. It's been dark. At least it seemed that way to me. Now, this is the world that's described here in this passage that Sarah just Read. God's people, again, haven't heard from him in hundreds of years, and they've gradually grown, up, grown more and more cold to what he's already said. And then Jesus shows up on the scene, and he begins preaching and working in Galilee. Verse 12 here in Matthew 4 says that Jesus hears of John being arrested, 
and he withdraws up there in northern Israel. Now it's possible the Lord does this to pray for and grieve over his friend, but the verse doesn't really say that. Matthew, it seems, has much bigger things in mind. Jesus here is kicking off his ministry, and he doesn't start where everyone thought he would, in Jerusalem. Right? He heads to the north, to the places that were known for darkness, where there was Gentile influence, where people spoke in strange accents. He goes to the hills, he goes to the sticks, and he begins to preach the gospel and call his disciples, verses 12 and 13 say, in this place called Galilee. He sets up his base of operations, strangely, in the old tribal lands of Zebulun and Naphtali, and he makes Capernaum his home. And verses 14 through 16 say that this fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah 9. It fulfills. So there's this theme of fulfillment throughout the book of Matthew. We've seen it already. We're going to see it again and again. What does this remind us of? That God has a plan. That God knows what he's doing. That he's still writing his story. That he keeps his promises. That he'll have the last word. He hasn't abandoned them back then. He's not going to leave us either. Jesus comes into a dark world. Into the darkest places. As verse 16 puts it. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death. On them a light has dawned. The light of the world takes on darkness here in Matthew 4, and his light is still shining today. Now, there are a couple of things I want you to see as we begin to walk through this passage. First, we see the light comes preaching the kingdom, and second, the light comes calling his disciples. As we dig into each, and then we seek to apply them to our lives, we're going to see that each of those realities challenges us, first of all, just as much as they did back then. And then they also include us in the mission of challenging those around us. So with that in mind, let's dig in. First, the light comes preaching the kingdom. We see this in verse 17. It reads again, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's this transition that takes place here that we see in those first three words, From that time. So the ministry of Jesus here on earth really gets going. And it starts with him preaching, something that we'll see throughout the book. But you'll notice if you look back to Matthew 3, 2, what he says here sounds exactly like what John the Baptist was saying. But it's not just as if John's handing off the baton, the torch to Jesus. Like if I tagged Pastor Jeff here and then he got up and kept on preaching. Same sermon, same theme. No, Jesus is the theme, right? Jesus, John is preparing the way. Jesus is the way. The one that John was preaching about, that he was preparing them for, is here, the very king himself. And when the Lord comes on the scene and he preaches these words, there's even deeper meaning and greater authority. But Jesus does call people to repentance as well. So the light comes, exposing the darkness. That's what light does, right? It cuts through that ignorance. So you're in a dark room. So dark, you can't see your hand in front of your face. The light allows you to see things how they really are. It gives you knowledge. 
The light, of course, also makes clear what is evil. Your dorm room may look really clean in the dark, right? But flip on a light, flip on a black light, and then all you can see is the dirt. The light, Jesus, comes on the scene exposing the darkness. Through his words, through his works, Jesus is going to expose sin for what it is. That's why people get so uncomfortable around him. Others, of course, are drawn to him, but some are very uncomfortable. And he calls them to repent, right? That's the word. Repentance, of course, is a, a churchy word that's so easily misunderstood. And because of that, I think it enables our sinful hearts to ignore it, to try to dodge it, to not hear what Christ says here. Repentance, what does it mean? I recently heard a definition um, from Beth Moore that I thought was as helpful as I've heard. She writes, repentance is not just words, not even sincere, tearful words. It's a change of mind that results in a transformed attitude that reflects the mind of Christ, resulting in the fruit of the Spirit. So something happens on the inside, conviction in our minds, in our hearts, that leads to change on the outside. Confession with our tongue, yes, but even more than that, actual change in our lives. So instead of crawling back into the darkness and trying to fight against the truth and attempting to justify it however we can, we own our darkness and we head into the light. One of my wife's favorite movies is The Blind Side, right? It may be because Sandra Bullock's character, you know, fits her pretty well. But a family in the film takes in a homeless, traumatized boy, a very large boy, who ends up being an NFL lineman, a Super Bowl champion. And there's a scene in the movie where Lee Ann, who's played by Sandra, she's with her husband, they're driving down the road, they see Mike, Big Mike, walking along the road in the cold and the rain, and they eventually, they initially ask him, you know, what are you doing, why are you out here, and they keep driving. But then she realizes what she's done. She tells her husband, you know, the Indian outlaw, to turn around. And she gets out. They pick him up. They take him in. And then things are never the same. That was Tim McGraw. That was a country music reference there. He didn't catch that. But that's what repentance looks like. Turning around, away from the dark, turning to the light, and not going back. Right? That's repentance. If we're honest, all of us, we know that we have darkness within us. It's just a matter of whether or not we own it and we fight it. Jen Wilkin puts it this way. There are two ways to escape feelings of guilt about your sin. One is to repent. The other is to repeat the sin over and over again until you no longer feel remorse. Here's something to think about. Maybe it's loving for Jesus to tell us to do this, to repent. We don't typically see it that way in our culture today. We don't like people telling us we're ignorant, certainly not that we're evil. But Jesus showing us our darkness, him calling us out, and even maybe through the mouths of others, that's actually a pretty loving thing, and we do well to listen to him. And Jesus says here that's the only way to get where we really want to go. 
Why does he say to repent? Again, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For the kingdom is at hand. We all want a world of light and love where there's no more tears and sadness or injustice and pain. That place is his kingdom. And he's the king. Jesus says that that kingdom is not so far away. And the only way to go there, finally and fully, the only way to see it come in and through around us is through repentance. That's what he says. Many of you here, I think, have, have visited the city museum in St. Louis. And you'll know that it has this labyrinth of tunnels that will keep your kids busy for hours. But... It's not the most friendly place for a middle-aged, slightly overweight man, right? I'll call myself slightly. Um, when our kids were little, we would take them there, and I attempted at times to join in and jump in there with them, but there were times I thought, hey, I'm gonna get stuck and they're gonna have to call the EMTs. Um, but just, just imagine if, if one of those tunnels leads into the kingdom, and Jesus, you know, talks about entering the kingdom. You've got one shot to get in there. Your body is just barely going to fit. But to get in there, you have to lower yourself. You have to get really small. And you sure can't take any backpacks or diaper bags through with you, right? That's what repentance is like. We have to get low. We have to humble ourselves. And we have to leave our sin behind. Second, the light comes calling his disciples. So there in the north country, there's this large lake, the Sea of Galilee, and there's this massive fishing industry up in that region. And Jesus walks along the shore, he calls out to some brothers, verses 18 and 19, Simon and Andrew, while they're throwing out their nets, and says, follow me. Verse 20 says they immediately obey. They leave their nets, they walk away, they follow Jesus. Something to think about. Maybe contrary to even what you've heard, um, we do think that these brothers and Jesus likely had a pre-existing relationship. So we can get this from John 1, 35 through 51, that, that likely predates this. We don't necessarily have to think of them just throwing down their stuff and following after a stranger. But that doesn't minimize what they're doing. It doesn't minimize the authority in Christ's words here. They are, though, turning away from all they've known, and they're following after Jesus. Verses 21 and 22 describe Jesus meeting another set of brothers, James and John. And we're going to meet these guys later in the book, and you're going to realize all these people are complicated sinners. But these two guys are there with their dad. They're mending their nets. And Jesus calls out to them, likely with the same words. And verse 22 says they leave their boat and their father and follow after Christ. Mark actually adds also that they leave behind servants. So another, another thing you've probably heard, and I'm sure I've said before, this idea that the disciples were especially dumb or especially impoverished, that's likely not the case. You know, they were sinners like you and me. But they follow him, they hear Christ's words, these four men, and they join up with his team. And what they do is they heed Christ's call to discipleship. Discipleship, that's what they become here, followers, learners. That's what disciple means. Pastor Jeremy Treat points out that this is actually the dominant term applied to those who live for Jesus in the New Testament, disciple. Christian is used three times. 
believers 15 times, disciples is used 253 times to describe those who are his. Well, what then's a disciple? I like the way Jeff Vanderstelt puts it. He says in his book, Saturate. This is what discipleship is all about. It's the ongoing process of submitting all of life to Jesus and seeing him saturate your entire life and world with his presence and power. It's a process of daily growing in your awareness of your need for him in the everyday stuff of life. It is walking with Jesus, being filled with Jesus, and being led by Jesus in every place and in every way. So discipleship. Now that may sound like an odd term to us. But these men connect their lives to Jesus, much like rabbis did back in the... Much like students did with rabbis back in the day. And they follow them around and they learn. Many of you here, I think, are have been or are teaching assistants where you submit yourself to a professor for four or five years and learn. Maybe you've done an apprenticeship where you followed around a craftsman learning a trade. It's not that much different than what's going on here. These, though, of course, you may say, these are disciples, capital D, like the original ones that found the church, yes. But it's not so much different than what we're called to as well, to follow Jesus in the, our everyday lives and learn from him. The light comes. He doesn't just come exposing sin, but he comes displaying the path. It says, follow me. That's what light also does, right? So last week, um, we're watching the big game, the unfortunate uh, game we lost. But right in the middle of the game, our lights go off. Um, so we had to watch it on this iPad the whole time. But regardless, you know, no big deal. Um, we lost anyhow. But um, later on, it was pitch black in the house. And the light on my phone, um, it would let me see my feet as I'm going up and down the stairs. Um, and so I wouldn't fall, right? Um, earlier in the day, you know, we could open up the blinds. And, and we could see out. And we could see the way out. And, and from... Ignorance from evil. It's that picture there of light allowing us to see the path. When we become Christ's disciples, we're not just turning from sin. We're turning to him in faith. We're leaving the road that leads to death. We're getting on the path that leads to life, toward Jesus, in faith. Repentance and faith, they go together. If you think about it, it's like they're two sides of the same coin. Think of it like this. You're, you're facing a wall, and then you turn to face the window. You can't really look out the window without first turning away from the wall. That's what faith and repentance look like. It's one movement, turning from, turning to. And here we see these brothers turning away from their sin to following the Savior. We don't have any indication, of course, that they were any more sinful than we are, but they put Jesus first and they seek to follow him with their whole lives. Maybe you caught this already, but this involves obedience. Doing whatever Jesus asks. Today, we don't like that word, right? We don't want people telling us what to do. We don't like submitting to authorities or really anyone at all. But hear me, if Jesus is our creator, if he made us and he knows us and what's best for us, 
if he's our redeemer, if he's saved us, and he cares for us, we know he's not trying to use us. We know he's not trying to harm us. He's, he's good and kind. And I've said this before, but the reality is, is that we're far less free than we really think. We're far more the product of our environments than we realize. I hate to break the news to you, but in reality, robots on the internet are really controlling you more than you think, right? What you think, what you buy, it's true. But Jesus is a gentle master, and he chooses these men, and they latch themselves to his person, first of all. And that's the main thing. They spend time with him. Jesus wants to be with them. They learn his ways. But they also here join with him in his mission. Because what else does Jesus say? Not just follow me in verse 19. He says, and I will make you fishers of men. So before, they would caught fish. Now they're going to catch people. A couple of things here. Don't hear Jesus saying that vocations like fishing are bad. Or that... Real Christians go into vocational ministry? No. I would argue that we need you where God has put you. This is a pretty unique time in history, couldn't we say, where Jesus is drawing those 12 out through whom he's going to found his church. But these men, again, put Jesus above all. They're not that much different from what he calls us to. And becoming his disciples includes Making more disciples. And that, of course, is a calling that's never going to be easy. It's not. There's a word today that gets quite a bit of disdain. And you don't hear it a lot, but maybe you have. It's the word proselytizing, right? Seeking out converts, trying to help someone find that path. What's crazy to me is that people are doing this all the time everywhere around us. There's so many causes, so many organizations where people are constantly recruiting. They're continually trying to convince people to do the right thing, to believe the right stuff, telling people they're wrong and that they need to change all the time. But if you talk about spiritual things, if you talk about salvation, if you're implying that someone's on the wrong road spiritually, that's just out of bounds. At least that's what people say. But there are people out there, they're gathering for clubs on campus, they're organizing for causes, and they're really seeking to make disciples. And as they do, they're willingly taking on ridicule and abuse. And so do those who follow after Jesus, because he invites us as his disciples on a trail to the cross. So we've seen the light comes preaching the kingdom the light comes calling his disciples. What do we do with this? Well, I want to give you two points that I'll break down in the remainder of our time. And they're this. First, turn to the light and follow. Second, turn on the light and fish. First, turn to the light and follow. Hear this call from Jesus in Matthew 4 to repent. Hear him say his kingdom is near. Turn from your sin, turn to him in faith. Obey him, follow him, 
Honor him as king. Do what he asks. And as you do, enter into his love and kindness. Find the wholeness and hope in his kingdom that you long for and that you're made for. Repent, friend. Maybe for the first time. Hear what Jesus says here and leave that life and come to him. And then I want to tell you, get ready for a lifetime of repentance. Martin Luther once said these words. Our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, will the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. One thing that we'll learn, the closer we get to the light, and the longer that he shines into our lives, the more that we are going to see areas of darkness, and the more that we'll see need for change. J.I. Packer put it this way. He said, we need to realize that while God's acceptance of each Christian believer is perfect from the start, our repentance always needs to be extended further as long as we are in this world. Repentance means turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of your God. And as our knowledge grows at these three points, so our practice of repentance has to be enlarged. Such a good reminder. As much as you know of your sin, to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of your God. And, and if you know anything about the Christian life, that's going to be increasing. Throughout our lives, deeper and deeper levels, more opportunities to turn from sin, to see Jesus in faith. And it'll be hard, but it'll be for our good. Every six months or so, in Karas, I put this chart up on the screen and I talk through it. Some of you um, old school Karas people are like, the cross chart again? Yes. We talk about membership class. Um, I think it's been something that God has used um, to guide us, to, to instill us a sense of humility in our culture. But from left to right there, you have the timeline of your life. You have a point of conversion, right? going on to when we go to be with Jesus in glory. The top axis represents his holiness. The bottom axis represents our sinfulness. And it's easy for us to think, and this is kind of the, the typical, I think, Christian mentality, is the more we grow as a Christian, the less and less we'll have to encounter and battle sin, the less we'll find wrong in our heart and have to turn from those things in faith. But the truth is, it's the exact opposite. So, Because as we grow, we move on from more superficial things. Like maybe using less unwholesome language, for example. And we turn to deeper things, the matters of the heart, like selfishness or greed or lust or anger. Our tendency in our sin is to fight against that, to protect ourselves, to say, God is really not that holy, he doesn't want that much, and try to push that top axis down, or to say that we're not that bad, you know, at least I'm not that guy, and to push the bottom axis up. But that is not good for us, because what God wants is for that gap to, to be filled, fully filled. That gap between his holiness and our sin by the cross, and more and more in our lives, the cross just appeared more beautiful and more glorious the more we grow in him. I would just say, non-believer, follower of Christ, let's embrace the light. 
and with me follow him. Become his disciple. Obey him. Tim Keller says that most people want Jesus as a consultant rather than a king. You know, tell me a few things that might make me happier, but you know, don't tell me what to do. Let us see him as Lord and together do everything we can in the power of his spirit to bring our lives in conformity with him to what he asks us to do in his word. And yeah, if we want to do that, we have to read his word. But there's something I don't want you to misunderstand. So go back to one of those clubs I was talking about before. You sign up, and if you're like me, you try to do everything you can to conform, everything you can do to impress the other members of the group, the leaders that are above you. Um, you want to seem worthy of the cause. You want to fit in. You, you labor to prove your devotion. You might even start ripping on those who oppose you and the cause. Becoming Christ's disciple is nothing like this at all. Think about this. Jesus didn't choose these men because he thought they were great. He didn't keep them around for that reason either. And it's the same with us. He can smell the fish guts all over our skin. He knows that the sailor language is going to soon come out. He chose us because he wanted us to be with him, and he wanted us to be a part of his movement. It's not our repentance, as Scott Sauls recently said, it's not our repentance that leads to God's kindness. It's God's kindness that leads to our repentance. As we say here all the time, we, we don't obey so he'll accept us. Um, we're accepted, therefore we obey. Grasping that makes all the difference. Second, turn on the light and fish. Turn on the light and fish. So we join with Jesus and we call others to repent with us. We warn those who are in the darkness. We call them into the light of his kingdom. And we gotta, we got to hear this, guys. If we read the book of Acts, this is what the early church so clearly and faithfully proclaimed. We don't just call people to believe. We also have to preach that people should repent. And, of course, this is controversial today. It may tempt you to even tune out what I'm saying. That's because we've just seen it done so poorly. Right? You know, we have these images of the people down at, you know, 9th and Broadway with the signs telling people to turn or burn. My, my wife's first exposure to Christians were, was from a fellow student that was just telling her all the time how terrible and sinful she was. That's not what we're talking about here. And while everyone out there today, not just in the church, everyone out there today seems to be yelling at someone, telling them they're stupid and terrible and need to change. That should not be us, the people of God. Right? Back to the cross chart. Imagine if you and I got this all wrong. We couldn't handle the tension, the awkward, between His holiness and our sin, so we fought against that with everything we could, comparing ourselves to God we couldn't handle, so what do we do? We just compare ourselves to other people. So I'm closer to God than he is. I'm more holy than she is. And then we go out with that understanding and tell people to repent and get ready for the kingdom. That's going to go terrible. 
It's unfortunately what so much happens today. But imagine, on the other hand, if we really understood this, that God is so holy and we are so sinful, we expect tomorrow when we wake up that we will find new sins in our hearts from which we'll need to turn in faith to Jesus. And that that will actually be the experience of the rest of our lives. And as we do, it'll be a good thing because we'll come to understand just how much sweeter than we ever realize that the cross of Jesus really is. Now, go out and tell people to repent, understanding that, right? There'll be humility. There'll be a genuine desire to love. Out of our heart will flow compassionate words. There'll be truth, but also grace. That's how we have to carry these words of Jesus here. Here's a related question. What would things look like if, in America, if Christians were known for repentance? If people thought, yeah, Christians are the humblest people around. What would that be like? Ray Ortland says, when the world sees more repentance in the church, the church will see more repentance in America. So don't hear me saying that we have to get everything figured out and then we can call people to repent. But we need to get our house in order. We need to get our lives together. And, and we need to be people that see the gospel so clearly that we cannot not be humble, right? And repentant ourselves. We have to call people, as Jesus says, to repent. But we have to do it through tears. First, for our own sin. And then also theirs. We can't love people well, hear me, by just smiling and nodding. But we won't get anywhere at all. Shaking our heads and wagging our fingers either. But we do have to point to his kingdom. That means we have to turn on the light, and that definitely turns up the awkward and brings on rejection and suffering. But that was the path of our Lord, and it will always be the path of his disciples. As we go and make more disciples, that's what Jesus calls us to do here as well, to join him in fishing for men. I love the way Pastor Doug Logan puts it in his book, On the Block. A follower of Jesus is someone who is marked by missional living, whose whole posture, behavior, and thinking is transformed by the gospel and the Great Commission being lived out in a lost and dying world. We must make Jesus the focal point of every decision, move, and life thought. Marked by missional living. This is what he, the Lord wants us to be about, making disciples, and making disciples that make more disciples. In other words, multiplication. Pointing to the king, guiding others to his kingdom, inviting others into this life of discipleship. People often ask us here in Karas what our disciple-making strategy is. That may be a weird question for the average person, but, you know, if you've been in church leadership or something, we'll get that question. Here's our answer, our missional communities that Sarah was talking about. Those are groups of disciples that come together to grow as disciples and make more disciples for Jesus. 
So we come together on one hand, life on life, life in community, to just help each other follow after Jesus, to submit to him as Lord in our daily lives. And then we commit to live a life on mission together, to make disciples. Our groups, we seek out a mission together where we say, here's the lake where we're all going to fish, right? Maybe it's refugees in town or as my MC, the youth of Columbia. So the lake. And then we help each other fish the ponds that are right by where each of us lives. Our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends. We remind each other that we're not just put here to sleep in the light. Just follow Jesus around together. We're following him on mission. That's what he's calling us to. We're carrying the light for him. And we remind each other that there's no such thing as a fisherman that just sits on the banks and plays Candy Crush on their phone. This is what Jesus calls us to, Carlos, to turn to the light and follow and to turn on the light and fish. So God makes us disciples of Jesus, bearers of life who go and make disciples for him. And as we do, we will make disciples of all nations. Excited to have the Fajeras with us today um, that are in Brazil, that we have a relationship with, um, as we talk about this. But this is where Matthew is going to the Great Commission at the end of the book. Go make disciples of all nations. But we see this in the very beginning of the book, right? We've, we've seen it even before this point. But in verse 15, Jesus goes again to the Galilee of the Gentiles. And that's where he wants to take us as well where the nations are, to the places where the darkness is. Jesus isn't just a light. Elsewhere in Isaiah, he's called a light for the nations. And we're going to soon see here in Matthew, Jesus is going to call us the light of the world. To go into the darkness and make disciples. Darkness, again, ignorance, evil. We can't avoid either. That's been us. It's still in us. Most of us here also are Gentiles, right? We cannot not go into the dark. We cannot not go to the Gentiles. We can't hide out in the light. He sends us into the dark. Because the light has come. One day, there'll be no need for the sun. God's purposes will be completed. The great story will be finished or maybe just get going. Jesus comes here on the scene and says the kingdom is at hand. We know one day it will come and fall. From that time until that day, we'll follow after him. We'll carry his light. It may seem dark. The bright days are coming, church. Even now, he'll use us to thread light through our worlds as we preach the kingdom, as we gather disciples with him. Though it may often feel like a cloud hangs over us and too much works its way into our souls, we can't let it overtake us. Let us crawl toward the light. Let us beg him to help us see and believe God's not finished yet. The darkness will not win. And we get to be a part of his game plan. How awesome is that? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that 
there is hope that you have shown your light into our hearts, drawn us out of the darkness to you. I pray that that would encourage us today. I pray that it would embolden us as we live in a dark world, that we wouldn't fear, that we would have boldness, but we would be filled with so much love and kindness, knowing what you love for us. I pray, Lord, that you would just make us um, people that do have humble hearts, that have a hunger for your word, to know what you ask, to follow through in obedience. Um, would you work that in us, Lord? Would you just renew and refresh our souls? Give us a deeper longing for you, a deeper desire for you. We ask this in Christ's name, amen.